Welcome to Future Proof, the marketing podcast from Said Business School, Oxford University, and Kantar, the data insights and consulting company. In each episode, we speak to industry leaders about the big issues in marketing, sharing evidence and inspiration for the future. I'm Jane Osler, Global Head of Media Insights. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Division of Kanto. Welcome to this edition of the Future Proof podcast, where I'm going to be talking to two eminent futurists about the future of the post-pandemic marketplace. Our first guest is Rohit Talwar, who is CEO of Fast Future. Rohit is a futurist, publisher and an author. And just recently, he's published a new book called Aftershocks and Opportunities, Scenarios for a Post-Pandemic Future. So we're going to be talking about some of the themes and chapters in that book. Our other guest is Jay Walker-Smith, who some of you will know as Chief Knowledge Officer of the Consulting Division of Kantar, who is a marketing strategist and futurist. So I'm hoping with two futurists here, we're going to have a fascinating discussion about what's going to be coming up. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I was going to ask you, Rohit, when you started writing this book or conceiving of this book, what, what were your thoughts about what the topics needed to be? Well, we thought when we started the book in March that it would be three or four months before organisations really started to get any sense of stability around how they were navigating the pandemic. And about June, July would be the ideal time to be giving them some input about what next. And so we went out to people around the world to contribute chapters and we deliberately kept it very open. But what we got was 115 responses, which we boiled down and the very best of them were split between a book that came out on the 1st of June and another one coming out in September. And in the first book, we focused on four big themes. What are some of those critical shifts that we can either see or anticipate and the scenarios? Secondly, what might happen around society and social policy, because we're seeing so much change happen in that area across the world. The third was around the implications for government and economy. And the fourth was around the implications for the future of business and our use of technology. And there's some really strong themes coming through there. But one of the most interesting things we're seeing is 
But really, as much as the world has got used to doing scenario planning, people haven't really got used to preparing for the worst case scenario. We generally tended to want to focus on how do we get back to a positive economic scenario? What contribution can we make to economic recovery? And how do we get things moving faster? But this time around, we've got two big factors. One is the recovery economically, but the other is the one we have less control over, which is the evolution of the pandemic. And we're beginning to understand now with secondary waves and peaks around the world that until we get the pandemic under control, everything is very volatile. And businesses are just starting to plan for that worst case scenario of a pandemic that might take till 2022 to start being eradicated and an economic recovery that might not happen till 2022, 2023. And I think that's been a real shock to organisations, but it's also been a spur to the outpouring of some really interesting creativity and innovation. Do you think that obviously sort of consumer sentiment and consumer attitudes kind of go alongside this? So we know from our COVID-19 barometer that more than half of households around the world have experienced a loss of income due to the pandemic. And that's just now. But is it your assumption that this then is going to carry on for a lot longer than businesses and consumers think as well? Are consumers being more pessimistic than businesses, do you think? I think everyone's attitudes are changing on an almost week-by-week basis, which Mm. is why I think it's such a good thing that you're doing your barometer on a regular basis because what people are saying now about their anticipation of the future is probably not looking out more than about 12 weeks. And it's constantly changing depending on whether they're furloughed and likely to get their job back or they're going back to work and suddenly everything looks great or they're losing their job completely or their household savings are being reduced on a continuous basis. Everyone's attitudes are changing and events are moving so quickly. And we see sort of three key factors in that. One is the extent of dithering, whether it's government, business or individual, before we make a decision. Then it's how we make our decisions and how informed are they. And then thirdly, what do the actions look like on the back of that? One simple example is travel. Around the world, travel restrictions were lifted. We're seeing countries opening up. I'm from the UK, where suddenly there were 60 air corridors where Brits could travel freely. Then all of a sudden, Spain was closed down again, almost with four hours notice. And that has a very big impact because I think it doesn't just affect people booking travel to Spain. It affects people's willingness to then book travel anywhere outside the country. So if you'd done a survey of those people two days before that, they would have been talking quite optimistically in many cases about travel coming back. And the travel companies would have been building very optimistic forecasts based on that. Now it's all been reversed. And where we had travel companies saying, well, we think we might get back to 2019 levels of business by 22, 2023, and the airline saying similar, but actually saying, the new normal by 2023 will be 80% of what we were doing in 2019. Now I think that they're all going to be downgrading again. And I think that really rapid shift in sentiment is something we're going to have to get much more used to, that we'll, we'll have to work in really dynamic three or four week cycles and learn how to switch our business on and off, switch resourcing on and off really fast which might give rise to a growth in 
sort of outsource capacity. I'll give you one example. We were already seeing supply chains around the world shrinking for most organizations by about 50 kilometers a year. The uncertainty around the pandemic, the closure of global travel, is seeing a lot of businesses saying, actually, we might stop manufacturing in certain countries and instead we'll license our IP to local manufacturers. And then you see the big shipping companies, the DHLs and FedEx um, in this world saying, wow, this is an opportunity for us. We can take all that space that used to hold people's goods and turn it into small footprint manufacturing where we can build a capability that we can then replicate all around the world. And in five years' time, DHL and UPS and others could become the biggest manufacturers in the world. Dramatic change in supply chains happening and literally having the capability to respond day by day, week by week, hour by hour to changing demand, changing sentiment. Walker, do you think that this new need for flexibility, um, adaptability and agility is filtering through to brands and marketers? How can brands innovate if everything is changing all the time? Well, that's a good question. You know, I do think what Rohit says about consumer attitudes is, is something that we've seen clearly in our data and, frankly, in everybody else's data. Consumers are very reactive to the moment. And that mitigates against any kind of medium-term or long-term planning for now. There is this kind of hidden assumption built into the ways in which companies do business of some stability of consumer attitudes. It is, in fact, the hidden assumption of all forecasting models, which is that there is enough stability in consumer attitudes that you can measure something today and use it to make a prediction about the future. And that kind of stability has at least temporarily been wiped away. Consumers are very reactive in the moment, and it means that companies are going to have to operate in exactly the same way. Now, this isn't a bad thing. In fact, more agility and the ability to operate more reactively in the near term is something that companies have been striving for anyway. They have struggled to figure out how to do it, but it has been the topic of conversation now for at least a decade. And agility is a word that is thrown around so much that it's almost become, you know, kind of meaningless. It is one of those business jargon terms. But companies are now being forced to plan in different ways operate logistical systems in different ways. You see lots of companies and lots of retailers changing their portfolios to simplify their product mix and their assortment sizes. It is all oriented around this need to, to be able to operate in the moment. But I, I do think to date, companies have been a little bit over-optimistic about our ability to move through this pandemic and put it behind us quickly. The recurrence of the pandemic and some of the countries that have had it under control, the continued exponential growth of the number of cases in other countries around the world, like the United States, is certainly something that has taken a lot of people by surprise. We kind of, you know, went into this thinking that we could get control of it quickly. And we've just forgotten how pandemics like this 
come and go. You really have to look back to the late 1950s here in the U.S. to find something that's that's even comparable in terms of the way it's it's likely to cycle through. But as companies begin to face up to this reality, and I, I do think as we get into the fall, we will see companies begin to think a little bit differently about this, that they will have a more realistic approach to the marketplace. Now, of course, a lot of this might be obviated by a rapid development of a very effective vaccine, and lots of companies are already announcing various kinds of trials for coronavirus vaccines. So if we are lucky enough to have something like that in place by the end of the year or the first part of 2021, then I think we will be more likely to go back to business as we have done it before. The longer this takes for us to get control of this, the more likely it is to have some far-reaching implications down the road. That said, one impact of living through black swan events, one sort of psychological impact, is that we go forward kind of overestimating the likelihood of the recurrence of a black swan event. So you go through one and now you think that they're all over the place and they're likely to occur again and again. And so that will have some impact on the way in which consumers think about spending and saving. And that will have some impact uh, on the ways in which companies think about building some resilience into their operating models. So we will have some enduring effects, but the nature of those effects, I think, is still undetermined. And we'll, we'll have to see how the marketplace plays out first. One of the things we, we saw in our research was that 40% of people say that they've increased or significantly increased online purchasing. So we know that e-commerce seems to have taken off in a big way and even more so for households with children as well. You know, this does raise, I think, some quite big questions, Rohit, about the leadership of organisations, because if if leaders need to transmit, you know, the need for this flexibility in operating models and, and what they're offering to consumers, for example, does it mean we need a different kind of leader now? Because they're not really in control anymore, are they? Well, they can be in control of certain things. And, and in particular, I think the rate of learning. So if we were to sit families down or groups of people in the community and say over the next two years your community or your home is going to be completely flooded it's going to be unlivable and the only place you can go and live is up a mountain that you're going to have to climb that's three miles high we would go through all sorts of training to make sure we were fit enough and ready enough and capable enough not only to climb the mountain but that to then build a home up there and do everything we needed to to survive And we're in that kind of situation now where it's not just the pandemic, but it's the aftershocks. It's the impact on people's spending behavior on corporate supply chains that is going to be very long lasting. And so we might be in a minority, but we're one of the the few organizations that is telling people to slow down right now and saying that actually wasting all your talent running around desperately trying to make something happen that isn't going to happen in the marketplace uh, or reforecasting, you know, on a daily basis based on almost no viable data, slow down a little bit and start to think and start to learn about what's changing in the world. Learn about the technologies and, and the scientific developments that are coming through 
understand how they could impact your market anyway, understand how they could create new opportunities. And really, the most valuable investment we can make in our business right now is upping the learning of our people, whether mm-hmm. it's digital literacy, understanding the new industries and new opportunities, learning new ways of collaborating and working in a more digital environment, but really upping the skill level, the capacity to innovate and to solve problems. And then we can tackle the market in a far more intelligent way. At the moment, I see, you know, what can only be described as a lot of lemming behavior. (laughs) Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Their staff run faster and faster off the end of the cliff, and then wondering why they're, you know, collapsing in a bloody pool at the, you know, at the bottom. And we need to be much smarter in how we think and navigate our way through the future. And the organisations that I think are going to do best are the ones that are investing in learning, building that capacity for foresight and insight, doing their forecasting in smarter ways, as. Walker said, adapting their supply chain so they outsource maybe more of it so that they can respond more rapidly in local markets to changing demand rather than having to serve these big factories that they own themselves. And learning how to sort of adapt their own operating model and accepting that for the next couple of years, there will be all those adaptation pains, their results are going to suffer, but they're going to come out the other side more sustainable, more viable and more fit for the future. What's the role for governments in all of this? Because it's it's fairly easy to see maybe the role for corporations and what they can do and how they can upskill their employees and how they can change their business models, you know, using intelligent and smart data, as Rohit suggests. But, you know, we have governments all around the world who are behaving very differently and are taking on different levels of responsibility. So is there, are there any changes that governments should make about policy about planning that that should feed into this too? Let me answer that in two ways. First, I think people's expectations about government versus business have already been changing, driven by sustainability. But now with the pandemic and the protest, at least in the US, which have had some global visibility as well, we're seeing people look to corporations to step up their public role, to take more of a lead in making a contribution to society. And and we've seen this bubbling up. Last year, the Business Roundtable in the U.S., which is an old trade organization of CEOs of big companies that has lobbied on behalf of kind of shareholder value, if you will, for many, many decades, 
rewrote its mission statement to include all stakeholders to give them an equal seat at the table. So companies should operate on behalf of all stakeholders, not just shareholders. The problem, of course, is that there's not a CEO in the world who knows how to operate a company on behalf of all stakeholders. Nobody's been trained that way. Nobody has come up through the ranks that way. Nobody gets paid that way. We don't know how to do that. So we're going to have to learn uh, how to do that. And I think that's what people are looking to companies to do. Uh, I think the expectations about government are much lower. And I think government is going to be in much more of a supportive role or collaborative role with business for a lot of these kinds of uh, societal demands that will go well beyond the pandemic uh, going forward. The second thing I would say about that is, let's remember that not every part of the economy has been negatively affected by this pandemic. So we look at the pandemic and we look at certain sectors of the economy, like things to do with travel and tourism, certain uh, kinds of impacts on certain elements of the financial sector. There are some parts of the economy, you know, sports and live events included, that have been significantly affected. There are other parts of the economy that are completely unaffected. Home building and housing in the U.S. is having as big a year as was projected last year. Now, a lot of that is because of the nature of the stock market, the level of interest rates, all of these things that the Federal Reserve in the U.S. has control over, but that's a sector of the economy that is just booming as usual. And then you look at certain products in the grocery stores. There are a lot of our clients at Cantar who are in the business of manufacturing products for grocery stores. They're having record sales quarters. If you look at e-commerce, which we've talked about as a shift, e-commerce is growing by leaps and bounds now. So there are sectors of the economy that don't need any government attention. And, and I think we would be remiss to simply look at what's happening right now as an event that requires sweeping changes throughout the entire economy. There are certain sectors of the economy that, you know, to put it somewhat sarcastically, probably don't want this to end because they're doing better than ever. So, so I think we've got to be selective in the ways in which we evaluate what, what's going to happen and what, what needs government attention or more careful scrutiny about, about the ways in which we do business. So, Rohit, what's your view on that? What's your view on what needs government attention or intervention over the course of the next coming years? Well, I agree that there's, there's a very uneven pattern of impact. A lot of the things that have been happening, like in construction, have really taken advantage of very low interest rates, very low prices for materials and for labor now because of the massive increase in unemployment in many markets. And the question is, how long can that bubble continue? Because if, if people are losing their jobs, they're not necessarily going to want to buy more property. They're more likely to be selling what will that do for the demand for new property or housing adjustments, people making renovations to their homes? What we have seen is that the government's share of GDP has gone up in pretty much every country on the planet. And I think we're actually in the next five years going to see governments play a much bigger role in economies, both in the direct employment. In the UK, it is the only sector that has actually had a positive growth in employment. 
public sector in the last four months, but also in procuring goods and services and then in, in paying money out to people to do things. And I think the government around the world really has an opportunity here to tie its recovery spending to investment in the future. So whether that's saying to someone, if we're giving you a furlough payment or a cash handout or unemployment benefit, we're going to tie that to you doing some continuous learning to learn new skills that either help you find a new job or create your own business. Because it's very unlikely that we're going to see new businesses emerge that employ at the same kind of volumes as the biggest employers of today. Technology will automate. So we will rely more on startups and small businesses. So we should be encouraging that. Secondly, now is a great opportunity to be investing in saying to companies, yes, we'll give you grants and handouts, but we want to tie that to you investing in innovation and in particular to the greening of your business, to reducing your environmental footprint and becoming more sustainable. And thirdly, into those kind of public facilities and resources, whether that be the education sector, the health sector, transport, to really lay the foundations for the next 20 years that create jobs, that set standards around environment and sustainability, that encourage new sectors to grow, that bring through the new science and technology. And I think that's where governments can play a really interesting role in transforming themselves. And I think already we're starting to see a lot of governments saying we're going to procure less and less from overseas so that we're more resilient. We're worried about climate change also shutting down supply chains. And so we'll see a growing focus on even the smallest of countries building up their local small footprint manufacturing, building up their local talent base, building their local education and civil society infrastructure. And so I think there are some quite fundamental changes that are maybe masked by the noise of the pandemic. But when we look out in a couple of years' time, we'll see what a a big change there's been. And we could well be moving to an era where government is becoming the biggest economic player in every country. That may shift again five years down the road. But particularly in an era where things like artificial intelligence are going to take far more jobs than they create in the short term government is going to have to play a much more active role and a much more foresighted role in terms of how it intervenes in markets. And it might even lead to some quite drastic action because the biggest spending of every government pretty much everywhere in the world hasn't been on the physical economy. It's been on stabilising financial markets. And so there might well be some changes there that try and take some of the volatility out so governments don't have to pour in tens of billions of dollars to stop the markets going crazy and can actually use that money instead to to create physical investment in the economy that will return something for the whole economy, not just the financial markets. I I think I would build on that just by noting that big central banks now own much larger pieces of the global economy than ever, even following the financial crisis of 2008. So we certainly see governments playing a much bigger role in the marketplace Whether that will translate into fiscal roles for governments, I think, remains to be seen. But it is certainly true that government is playing a much bigger role in trying to stabilize markets and do what it can to to help even out some of the uncertainty that exists in the marketplace today. 
I guess the caution that I might add, and I, I do tend to be a little bit of a somewhat of a pessimist about large sweeping changes for progressive developments in, in the marketplace, is that we've been through big, long-lasting disruptions before. In fact, we just came out of one following the financial crisis of 2008. And a lot of the resolutions and and sort of deals with God that we make in the heat of those moments are things that we forget about very quickly as soon as the markets and the economy begin to turn around. So the typical experience coming out of disruptions tends to be less change, not more change. Now, there will be some big changes, but I think we have to be very careful about where we expect to see some of these changes take place. And I suspect that we will see a lot more of the old normal going forward than than something that is completely new in every way. If I could just respond to that very quickly, I kind of agree in some respects that I think if we look back in 2023, we'll be unpleasantly surprised by how little has changed in some domains. But I think we also need to look at this on a global basis. So if we look at the large economies that tend to move at a slightly more glacial pace, whether that's the US, the UK, others, then it's easy to kind of think that there'll be this reversion to a norm. But I think it's much more interesting to look at the countries that are rated as the most innovative and the best places to do business and quite often the happiest. And then you start looking at places like Singapore and Taiwan and New Zealand, Finland, Iceland and others. And you see an incredible rate of change, an incredible scale of innovation, whether that's investing in the literacy of the population, whether that's changing the openness and access to government, whether that's investing in new sectors, changing the education system so you're, you're, you're bringing in new measures of quality of education and whether you're preparing someone as a whole citizen or as an economic unit of production. And I think if you look slightly further afield, you see a much more radical set of shifts coming. And then if we apply that globally, some countries will be quite dramatically different. Others somewhat different. And some, as I say, will be unpleasantly surprised at how little has changed or how things may even have got worse for a lot of people in that period. Do you think we should be optimistic or pessimistic about the near future? I think it's a combination of both. I think certainly consumers are going to come out of this more scarred than we would like. That has been the historic impact of something like this. Recent economic papers actually look back and based upon past experiences predicted that there will be a high likelihood of a scenario in which consumer spending is pulled back 5 to 10% for a number of years to come simply because of the scarring effect of having gone through an event like this. And that would be consistent with things that we've even seen recently in the financial crisis. So that's that's the reason to be pessimistic. That's also the opportunity for companies 
to try and step in and, and communicate some different signals of optimism and encouragement and not simply wait for the marketplace to catch up with them. So, so I think that companies need to kind of lean into this. But on the optimistic side, I, I do think we're going to see a new source of innovation in the marketplace. And I think it's all going to be related to hygiene and health. I think just like in the aftermath of 9-11, when we had to institute security perimeters for air travel, we're now going to be instituting hygiene perimeters for engagement in the consumer marketplace. And that creates a huge opportunity for innovation around all things related to hygiene and health. And I tend to refer to that as the next digital It's very much tied into health, which was already a huge growing part of the future. And I think we will just see some acceleration there. So I'm very optimistic that we'll see some new opportunities and some new innovation and some new kinds of growth come out of what is sure to be, I think, some permanent changes related to hygiene security in the marketplace. Okay. And Rohit, where do you stand on the um, optimistic versus pessimistic scale? I think at the moment, I'm pretty pessimistic about the extent to which we'll get global collaboration to truly eradicate this pandemic. The pandemic travels the world on seat 43C of an airplane. And so whilst any country is at risk, we're all at risk, which is what we're seeing at the moment with the new spikes. Most of them start with people coming in from outside. And we have a lot of countries that are financially weak and have a very fragile healthcare system. When we had the global financial crisis, what really pulled us out was a collaboration between the G7, the G20, and China in particular, working with the European Commission and others to really try and avoid a meltdown. We need that same kind of global collaboration between all the power brokers to say, let's fix this at the local level with robust healthcare systems that can deliver vaccination and testing and whatever so that we can be through this in the next two to three years. But at the moment, I'm pessimistic about that action happening. I think I'm also pessimistic about the future for certain sectors. I think if you're in aviation, hotels, hospitality, entertainment, you really need to be thinking about 2022, 2023, maybe even 2024, before you've established some sort of new stability, which may not be at the level it was in 2019. On the optimistic side, I think we've had some really powerful role models about how to engage the population, how to deliver new services, whether it's track and trace or citizen engagement in countries like Korea, like Taiwan, like New Zealand, like Vietnam. We've seen a lot of really good local level innovation and and citizen engagement and open communication. And I think that's a very encouraging model for all of us. And then I think in the business world, we're seeing a lot of innovation around people spotting valuable gaps in the marketplace, as Walker suggested, whether it's around hygiene, whether it's around contactless experiences, whether it's around new ways of delivering food and goods to us. But we're seeing a lot of innovation. And in every economic downturn, you tend to see incredible new businesses emerge. So I'm very encouraged by whether it's necessity or opportunity that's driving innovation and could create a whole new set of businesses and sectors of the future, which is where we have to pin our hopes 
for job creation and economic recovery. So, so that, that gives me cause for optimism as well. listening to Future Proof. For all episodes and more information, visit Kantar.com or OxfordFutureOfMarketing.com. Please leave us a rating and a review and subscribe within your podcast app so you know when new episodes are released. Thank you.